It is great to be back. Without introduction, playing basketball, I know you're thinking, you're not who I expected to step up here, though. Which proves only one thing, there must be a God. <laughs> that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Live your truth. Be true to yourself. There's a lot of slogans we hear today about truth, don't we? So I figured we'd start to bring some clarity with something Jesus said in John 14, 6. I am one of the ways, one of the truths, and one possible life. Live it according to whatever feels good to you. If you do, you're okay in my book. Jesus didn't say that, did he? You know, there's at least 100 verses in the New Testament that makes it clear that Jesus is the only way to get to God. Have you ever just stopped amidst our culture of confusion and asked yourself the question, why does truth really even matter? Who cares? I was giving a talk on truth to a group of high school students and a student came up to me right when I was done in the front. He goes, Dr. McDowell, you just talked about truth for an hour. Why is truth even important? I said, well, do you want the true answer or the false answer? Now, if you ask why is truth important, even though you don't realize it, what do you already assume is important? This is the participatory part of the program. <laughs> truth. In fact, the Apostle Paul put it this way. In 2 Thessalonians 2.10, he said, With all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they do not receive the love of truth, so as to be saved. Do you love truth? Are you willing to follow it and suffer for it? Because Paul says, and Jesus said, it has eternal consequences. Now let's take a step back though, and maybe it'll be helpful to clarify why truth is even important. And for one reason is because truth has consequences. Truth has consequences. My uncle is a pastor in Massachusetts, and he told me a story about a cousin of mine that I never met. My cousin was deaf, and he would go walking every day on the train tracks out near where he lived because he knew what time the trains came. But he woke up one morning, and it never crossed his mind that they would change the time that the trains came. So my distant cousin was out there walking on the train tracks, couldn't hear the warning behind, the train couldn't stop in time, it actually hit and killed him and cost him his life. Now that's pretty dramatic, but it makes a really important point that truth has consequences. You just finished a series together as a church on families. If your family doesn't value truth, it's going to disintegrate. You're entering into a series on spiritual warfare. Satan is the father of lies at the root of resisting false ideas is truth. That's why Hosea the minor prophet said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Truth has consequences, but there's a second reason. I want everybody in here actually close your eyes. Close your eyes right where you're at. With your eyes closed, point the direction you think is north. Keep your eyes closed. You've got to pick. Point the direction you think. Now, keep your hand pointed and open up your eyes and look around. I'm glad I'm not taking directions from this section of the room right here. 
Now, I actually have no sense of direction, so I don't know what direction north is, but I can tell you this, it is not straight up like a few of you are pointing. <laughs> Every time, Ronnie, I kid you not, at least one person is like, it's got to be straight up. Now, if you're trying to get to Oklahoma as compared to, say, Texas, what might help you know what direction north is? A compass, right? You see, truth is like a compass for life, or I guess the app on your smartphone might help as well. You see, when we know what is true, then we know how we should orient our lives. We know what choices we should make. We know what direction we should go. That's why truth is so important. Like, you know what's interesting? The first thing we learn about God in the Bible is in the beginning, God what? Created. We learn that God is a creator before we learn that God is holy or just or merciful. Why? If something is created, there's a purpose for it and a truth about it and the way it's supposed to operate. So years ago, my mom got a new email account and was setting it up herself. And this is when they were living in Dallas. And uh, one of the first instructions came up on the computer screen said, close all the windows. <laughs> my mom, my flesh and blood, got up from her chair, walked around the house, and closed all the windows in the house. Now, you're chuckling because you understand something about a computer, right? It's designed to function a certain way. And when it says close all the windows, it doesn't actually mean the windows in your physical house. It's referring to something on a computer. And if you get it wrong, what happens? Embarrassment, confusion, frustration, and you'll probably get angry too. But you know, Jesus said something interesting about truth. He said, you shall know the truth and what? The truth shall set you free. If you understand the truth of a computer and its purpose, then you know how it should operate and how it should be used and you're free to use it according to its design. You see, why is truth important? Because truth is like a compass for life and it's actually truth that sets us free. I think one of the biggest lies we are tempted to believe in our culture today is truth is doing whatever you feel is right. As long as you decide it, that's true for you, and all of us are supposed to affirm that, or we're bigots. That's the idea in our culture. Friends, that's not real freedom. Freedom is having the capacity to do what is right. Freedom is orienting our lives around truth and who God has designed us to be, whether we feel it or not. That's why truth is so important. Because truth helps us orient our lives because it's a compass for life. So number one, truth has consequences. Number two, truth is like a compass for life. But number three is that truth matters because believing is not enough. What do you mean? Let me clarify. Look, here's the reality. You've probably heard people say, well, that's true for you, but not true for me. Listen very carefully. Nothing is true or false because you believe it. <laughs> In fact, reality is disgustingly indifferent to what we believe about it. You know how many times I believed I was six foot ten and in the NBA? I'm only six seven. <laughs> On this stage, right, at best, I believe there's a million dollars in my wallet. 
doesn't matter how much I believe that. It's not true. Besides, even if it were, my great state of California would take most of it anyways. Which is why me and all my friends are moving here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Partly, right? You're like, you can stay at home. We love you, but Yeah, I get it. I get it. Look, you can have your own beliefs, but you can't have your own truth. You can have your own beliefs, but you can't have your own truth. You can live out your belief, but you cannot live out your truth. Now understand that with clarity, it's important to give a definition of what we mean by truth. So this might sound fancy at first, but I think you'll find this very helpful. As philosophers have what's called the correspondence theory of truth. And the idea is, if you make a statement about the world and it matches up with reality, then your statement is what? True. If it doesn't, it's false. So truth is when a belief or an idea corresponds with reality. So if I told you, hey, I drove here from California, it only took me 12 hours because I drove in my new red Lamborghini and you go outside and you see this, my statement just might be what? True. If you walk outside and you see this, my statement would be what? False. Why? Because it's yellow and I said red. If you walk outside and see the kind of car I really drive, which is this, <laughs> why are you laughing? I gave this talk to a group of junior hires and eighth grader goes, ah, ha, ha, you drive a Ford. I was like, what do you drive? <laughs> My statement would be really false because that's not close to a Lamborghini. In fact, I've done this with my kids. I try to do, I love this illustration with the trick and the toilet paper. I try to do this stuff with my kids to teach them truths. And I'll take a word and an object. So like with superheroes, here's the word Wolverine, Spider-Man, and Batman. And then, of course, there's the object. So this is Wolverine because it corresponds word to object. This is Batman corresponds word to object. This is Spider-Man word to object. Truth is when a belief matches up with... Is that smoke? No, nah, I'm just kidding. Now, what did you do when I said that? A lot of you turned and looked. Now, don't worry, Ronnie. Since there is no smoke in the back, my statement was what? It was false. If there were, my statement would be true. That's what truth is. You have a belief, you have an idea, and if it describes the world as it is, your belief is true. If it doesn't, your belief is false. Now, you're probably sitting here going, that's common sense, and it is. But here's the deal. When the topic shifts to moral values or religion, people will change what they mean by truth. So let's break this down. If I were to ask you your favorite flavor of ice cream, what would you say? Rocky Road? Sherbet is not an ice cream. <laughs> Cookies and cream? Mint chocolate chip? Vanilla? Okay, these are good, but let me tell you what the best flavor is. The best flavor of ice cream is chocolate peanut butter. Now, who says that statement is true? Let me see your hands. Who says that statement is false? Boy. We find ourselves in a predicament. So the statement, chocolate peanut butter is the best, can be true for me, but not true for you. And the answer is because we're talking about something we call subjective. A subjective claim is personal. 
it's private, and it depends upon the beliefs of the individual. So the key word in subjective is what? Subject. So it's a feeling that is internal to the subject, and you could say is true for that subject if that's how they feel or that's how the subject experiences the world. When you think of subjective claims, I want you to think of ice cream because ice cream flavor preference depends upon the subject. What if I were to say chocolate peanut butter ice cream helps us control diabetes? <laughs> Normally I get an amen, but there's clearly no Baptist here. <laughs> now, some of you had a nervous chuckle because that's a very different kind of claim, isn't it? Chocolate peanut butter ice cream controls diabetes is very different than chocolate peanut butter ice cream is the best. And the reason is because it's not a subjective claim, it's an objective claim about the way the world actually is. It's a claim about objective reality. See, so objective claims are external to the way somebody thinks, and they're about the world or the object within itself. Okay, so you might, an illustration, if I had a big scoop of ice cream and I said, this chocolate peanut butter ice cream is delicious, it's not really about the object. That's really about my experience of the ice cream. But if I said, this is 25 grams, what's that about? That's about the object, not my experience of it. So when you think of subjective claims, I want you to think of ice cream. When you think of objective claims, I want you to think of insulin. Now I'm about to put up there in a minute some claims on the screen, and I want you to participate with me and shout out one of two things. If it is a subjective claim, shout out ice cream. If it's an objective claim, shout out insulin. All right, now very quickly, I'm not asking if these claims are true or false. I'm simply asking what kind of claim is it? Okay, subjective claim, ice cream, objective claim, insulin. All right, let's give this a shot. For the first one, Coke tastes better than Pepsi. Ice cream. Even if you don't like Coke or Pepsi, you know this is a preference claim. Diet Coke has fewer calories than regular Coke. Okay, good. Now it's not about a preference. It's about the soda itself and a property that it has or allegedly has. Two plus two equals four. Okay, good. I don't think I've ever had a single person say ice cream for this although they're trying to change it today, aren't they? We all know math deals with the mind-independent world the way the world is. Our mind reflects it, but our mind doesn't create it. All right, Hawaii is the most beautiful vacation spot on earth. Okay, good. We all know it's Southern California. All right, George Washington was the first president of the United States. Okay, good. Now, what discipline is this? This claim. It's history, right? So you can't see George Washington in the same way being the president, obviously, because this is in the past, but we still know there's a mind-independent truth about historical claims. Uh, good. Excellent answer. How about this one? Action movies are more enjoyable than romances. Ice cream, it's a matter of preference. I know some of you guys are like, but that's objectively true. 23 years of marriage speaking here, don't die on that hill. <laughs> All right, ice cream or insulin? 
Sean McDowell can bench press 300 pounds. I am not feeling the love. Now, I want you to listen very carefully. I heard some mixture of the two. I'm not asking you if this is true or false. You don't have to know if it's true or false to know whether it's ice cream or insulin. Right? Is there a truth about this claim based upon the world itself? Yeah. That is not an opinion preference claim. That's a claim about reality. Now we could test it, right? I guess I could, I wouldn't cut off this jacket. I like this jacket, but we could throw some weight gloves on, see if I can bench 300 pounds. The answer is yes or no, and it depends upon me, my body, not your beliefs. So think about it. If I said there's 50 quadrillion, zillion, zillion, zillion atoms in the universe, is there a truth about that claim? Yeah, there's a truth about the number of atoms that exist. We'll never know it, but don't confuse whether we know something is true or false with whether it is true or false. Some of you are like, yeah, but can you bench 300 pounds? Here's the deal. I cared before I turned 40. Now I just want to stay alive. All right, how about this one? Earth is the center of the solar system. Okay, insulin, most of you got it. You paused because this statement is also what? It's false. Can you have a false insulin statement? Sure. If I said George Washington was the second president of the United States, that's still about the presidency, but we got it wrong. If I said two plus two equals five, that's still an insulin claim, but we got it wrong. So you can have an objective claim that ends up being false. So far, you've told me mathematical claims are like insulin. You've told me historical claims are like insulin. You've told me scientific claims are about insulin. How about this one? Abortion is wrong. Who says ice cream? Let me see your hands. Who says insulin? Who says, Sean, this is Super Bowl Sunday. You're making me think. <laughs> now, this is not a scientific claim, is it? This is not a historical claim. This is a moral claim. Are moral claims all matters of preference, like ice cream flavor? Or do they deal with the objective, mind-independent world? Years ago, I was having a conversation with this guy about abortion. And he goes, if you don't like abortion, don't have one. I said, sorry to point out the obvious, but I can't. I actually think sarcasm is the sixth love language, just for the record. Amen. We do have a Baptist here. <laughs> he said to me, he said, if you don't like abortion, don't have one. Notice what he was doing. If, he was moving the question of the morality of abortion into the category of preference. If you don't like chicken, get the fish. If you don't like a baked potato, get rice. As if the question of abortion is entirely a question of preference. So I asked him a question that was prompted to be my mentor of mine. I said, hey, are you against slavery? And he looked at me like I was nuts. He said, of course. I said, then if you don't like slavery, don't own a slave. Now, let me ask you a question. Are we against slavery because we don't like it and don't prefer it? The answer is no. 
We're against slavery because we know it's objectively wrong to own and mistreat another human being based on something secondary such as skin color. You know what? We know that. If morality was like ice cream, we could make no moral judgments of anything being actually wrong. You couldn't judge sexism. You couldn't judge racism. You couldn't judge financial fraud. If morality is like ice cream, then that's just what somebody doesn't prefer. You maybe hear people say, well, I'm a relativist. I don't think there's objective moral truth. I've had people tell me that, and guess what? I never believe them. I don't believe it. Why? Number one, Romans 2 tells us even people without the law know the law because it's written where? On their hearts. But second, my dad said to me one time, he goes, son, you know what someone believes? Not by what they say, not by what they do, but by how they want to be treated. In other words, someone will break a promise to you, but if you break a promise to them, they will cry foul. I tell my students, I, I teach at a grad program, and I still do one high school class, Bible class at a local Christian school. And I tell my students, I say, look, if someone tells you there's no such thing as right and wrong, cut in front of them in line. They will very quickly let you know that you violated an objective moral norm. Friends, you know what somebody believes by morality, not by their actions, but by their reactions. Even atheists who don't believe in God are still made in the image of God and still live in the world that God has made. Now, very quickly, you say, how do we really, like, what is at the heart of the question of abortion? Let me just frame it quickly. Think about this. Imagine after church today, some of you go home because you're getting ready for the Super Bowl party, and you decide, you know what, I'm going to do the dishes. Now, for some of you, this is going to take a lot of imagination. So you go to the kitchen, you're doing the dishes, and maybe your younger brother, sister, or kid or grandkid walks up and says, hey, mommy, daddy, bro, papa, can I kill this? Now, your back is turned, so before you answer, what question would you ask? What is it? If you turn around, it's a cockroach, you'd be like, hurry up. If you turn around, it's a puppy, you'd be like, well, that's messed up. You want to hurt a puppy. If you turn around and the kid's like, hey, I pulled this infant out of a carriage down the street, you'd be like, whoa, definitely no. And even though you're five, you need serious counseling. It's an interesting question. Why should we treat a human being, a baby, different than a cockroach? And the answer is because of what it is. That's why regimes like the Nazis to justify murder had to dehumanize the Jews. Friends, think about this. Either the unborn is human or it's not. Either we protect human life or we don't. Though the question of the morality of abortion, although people might have different opinions about it, there is an objective truth whether it's human and whether or not we should protect human life. It is a question of insulin, 
not of ice cream. By the way, very quickly, I do know even mentioning this is a sensitive, painful topic, and I hope you know this, that abortion is not the unforgivable sin. God has grace and mercy for you if you have any experience of this and wants to set you free. Please know that. Amen? By the way, if all morality were subjective, what would that do to the gospel? There'd be no need for Jesus to die. Three more, ice cream or insulin. Jesus was a carpenter. Insulin. Jesus died on the cross in AD 30. Insulin. Jesus resurrected as proof he is divine. Insulin, good. Now, this is not only a historical claim, this is now a religious claim, isn't it? That Jesus is God. Are we making an objective claim about the universe or just our own preference and experiences? Let's make it really clear. I hope everybody in here realizes that nobody dies and goes to hell just for not believing in Jesus. You realize that, right? Nobody dies and goes to hell just for not believing in Jesus. People die and go to the awful place described as hell because of a moral rebellion against their creator. Because of a moral virus the Bible calls sin. And to say that Buddha or Krishna or Muhammad or any other religious figure can forgive my sins is like saying chocolate peanut butter ice cream controls diabetes. It doesn't work in the objective real world. Have you ever just really thought for a moment, why is Jesus the only way? It feels so exclusive in a generation where one of the biggest virtues is inclusivity and inclusivism. Jesus comes along and says he's the only way. How intolerant. Why is Jesus the only way? And the quick answer is, Jesus is the only way to God because Jesus is the only one that fixed the problem that separates us from God. I mean, think about it. If you go driving home and you run out of gas, it doesn't do any good to rotate the tires, get new spark plugs, or drop a few thousand dollars for a new transmission. Identify the problem and fix it. Friends, the problem is sin. There is an objective moral law rooted in God's character. And when we sin, we are separated from a holy God. And Jesus is God who takes on human flesh, lives a sinless life, and pays the debt that we owe God and offers us by grace through faith eternal life if we're humble enough to accept it. Jesus is the only way because he's the only one who identified and fixed the problem. But what's unique about Christianity is it's not just the kind of system that can be true for you, but not true for you. It's rooted in testable historical events. So Paul writes in this crazy passage in this letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. Do you realize how crazy that is? Here Paul is 25 years later saying, this entire religious movement that we're starting, if you find the body of Jesus, we're done. And we're to be pitied. That's a bizarre claim if it wasn't true. So what's Paul saying? He's saying all of Christianity rests on a single, testable, historical event. So if you're there with, say, Doubting Thomas, who says, I will not believe unless I can see with my eyes and touch with my hand. If you're in that room, you could reach out and touch the spear wound in the side of Jesus. If you're there with the women when they went to the tomb to embalm the body, you could have seen a massive stone rolled away, ducked your head and leaned in, smelled the scent of a musty tomb and seen the linen cloth of Jesus laying there. If you're there at the cross, you could have reached out and touched the cross and got a splinter on your hand potentially and felt the trickle of warm blood that came down. Friends, you might believe in Jesus. You might not believe in Jesus. But the claims of Christ are either true or false. Like events in history, like scientific claims, like mathematical claims. They are claims about the objective world. And it's only when we know that truth and orient our lives around us that we experience real freedom. Amen? We can have our own beliefs, but we cannot have our own truth. The question is, are our beliefs rooted in what is really true? Because that's the key to freedom. Amen? Now, one question I didn't answer, if you're tracking me, you're thinking, okay, truth is important. Truth sets us free. Truth has eternal consequences. Then how do I know that Christianity is true? Well, that's what sets Christianity apart, is it invites us to actually consider the evidence. Some of you have asked this week and you've said, McDowell, I recognize that name. Are you related to Josh? Yes, my father is Josh McDowell. He's 83 years old. And he has been writing and speaking and defending the faith for decades. If some of you don't know his story, he set out like in the 50s, before there was any modern apologetics books, to disprove Christianity. And was surprised by the amount of evidence for the manuscripts, fulfilled prophecy, the resurrection of Jesus. Became a Christian and turned his life upside down, so much so that God gave him the power to forgive his abusive, drunk father changed his life well, my dad wrote a book called evidence that demands a verdict and what's funny is no publisher wanted it they're like that book won't sell well now it sold millions of copies and really interestingly the two of us together had a chance to do an update of this recently and i asked my dad i'm like how does the evidence for christianity compare to when you first wrote this he goes son there's a tsunami of evidence now first off my dad has never understated anything in his life everything is larger than life but the evidence is there for those willing to search for it. 
You know, this past week, the Joe Rogan podcast, one of the biggest podcasts, if not the biggest one in the world, had a former Christian on who literally mentioned this book. Just by mentioning it, it sent sales through the roof. And I thought, here's a ton of people that are going to engage the evidence for Jesus that would not have otherwise somehow it wove its way into that podcast. Isn't that amazing? The evidence is there if we're willing to find it. The other book that's back there, if it's helpful, is I wrote a book called A Rebel's Manifesto. And the idea is we live in a cancel culture, don't we? You say the wrong thing, you tweet the wrong thing, we will shame you and humiliate you and your character and, and your career. You know what cancel culture lacks? Is forgiveness and grace, which is at the heart of the gospel. So this is a book calling a generation of young people to build common ground, to really love our neighbors. And it's full of the most thorny issues to help us talk with this generation on things like transgender, things like race, immigration, you name it. How do we think Christianly about these? Now, I know you just finished a series on families and kind of passing on the faith. You know what all the studies show? Three things. If you want to pass on your faith to your kids or grandkids, number one, you got to model it. Number two, build relationships with your kids. And number three, have meaningful spiritual conversations with them. You do those three things, you're in the best position, God willing, to help pass on your faith. So that book is meant to be a tool to help you work through some of these tough issues today that if we don't talk with our kids, our culture is happy to tell them how they should think, and we know this.